All right, Diana, I'm excited to have you today. She is the VP of Market Insights at MBS Highway. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Well, I, first off, I want you to tell us why have you been working at MBS Highway as long as you have? What brought you to MBS Highway and why do you continue to be as passionate as you are today about what you're doing in the market? So I think it's funny. My story is like a lot of others in the industry. None of us ever are five, 10 years old and say, I want to originate loans when I get older. We all want to be teachers or firefighters or whatever movie stars. But my dad has actually been working for Barry Habib, our CEO at MBS Highway for about 15 years. So I was just a little girl. Barry was always like a second dad to me. And I was working for a job. I wasn't too happy. And I started in sales at MBS Highway and I was only 19 years old. I'm 24 now. So on the younger, newer side of the industry, but learning a ton. And at first, maybe I wasn't even as passionate about it. I needed a job. I was younger, still go, still in college, needed to pay for it. I learned that there is so much more to mortgage and real estate than what meets the eye. I found something so rewarding in being able to learn what's happening in the economy and then to teach that to our subscribers, both mortgage and real estate professionals. But then the best part about it is it does transcend into our consumers' lives. So we really help people change their lives for the better. The number one reason that I love MBS Highway as a tool in my business and, and any chance that I get to engage with you or with Barry or join one of the webinars or attend an, a live event that one of you is speaking at is you guys are just, you're breathing so much life and education and positivity into the market and with this shift right now it we need more of it not only do we need more positivity and energy but we also need to be educated so that we in turn can go and educate our clients and this is a great opportunity for the professional that is a student of the game they're a master of their craft they want to sharpen their tools they're starved for more knowledge they're always trying to educate themselves and that's what you guys bring to the table and that's why I'm so excited to have you here so that we can educate everybody out in the marketplace. That's what I'm hoping to accomplish with you today. The elephant in the room is inflation, right? What does inflation have to do with mortgage rates and when do you think inflation is going to abate? Great question. And of course, you're going to hear a lot about all the questions that we talked about talk about today on the news, whatever social media outlet you're looking at. And a lot of it is skewed negatively. I mean, it's really hard to skew. Uh, we're going to be looking at core CPI in just a second, a 6.6% year over year core CPI number. It's really hard to skew that positively which is fine, but let's take a further look down the road and see even just as early as next month, what we're going to be expecting. Now we can talk to all these different questions. And I think it's important to just be able to talk to them when you're talking to clients, referral partners, or colleagues. But I do want to share some slides with you because I think it'll help illustrate the point a little bit better because there is a lot of math involved. So we're going to take it. a look at this chart first. And this is showing us the rolling 12-month average of core CPI, or the core consumer price index. Now, the consumer price index is our favorite measure here at MBS Highway, Highway of what inflation is doing. As you know, the Fed's favorite measure of inflation is the PCE, or Personal Consumption Expenditure Report. But we look at the core CPI because it is a little bit more all-encompassing. But the core does strip out things like food and energy, and it strips it out, and the Fed pays attention more to the core readings because they can't influence things like food and energy. So for for example, a war or some kind of economic hardship or uh, a natural disaster, if that affects food prices or energy prices, that's not something they can control. So we're going to take a closer look at core CPI or core consumer price index. 
Now, like I said, we're currently at 6.6% year over year. And the latest month over month reading is what we got in September. Or really, we got it this month in October, but it was for the month of September. And we have a six tenths of a percent reading, pretty similar to what we saw in the August report. Now, keep in mind that most, if not all, of these numbers are pretty rounded. There are usually four or five decimal places after each one of these numbers, but we're going with one here. But the important thing to consider is how inflation is actually calculated. Any inflation report is calculated, as I mentioned, on a 12-month rolling average. So what that means is if you take September report from 2022 and go all the way back to October of 2021, and you add those 12 numbers up together, again, count for things like rounding and for compounding. But if you do add all these numbers up together, it would bring you to that 6.6% year-over-year inflation rate. Now, we're seeing really high inflation right now because take a look at what happened in July, August, and September of 2021. We had a three-tenths, two-tenths, and three-tenths percent inflation rate, respectively, for each of those months. So when inflation was rampant in the last few months from June through September of this year, it was replacing these low readings. So in order to see that year-over-year inflation reading move higher, when we got the July reading, we would have had to get something over whatever we were replacing. So we got three, three tens of a percent. Now, same thing is same story really for August and September, but the silver lining here, what you asked, when are we going to see some relief in inflation is hopefully next month in November when we get the October of 2022 inflation report. So October is obviously much higher than what we saw last year in September. We're going to have to be replacing a six tenths of a percent reading to see that year over year increase. So let's just say, for example, that it does come in at six tenths of a percent in October of 2022. That's really not going to change that year over year reading too much. But if we get maybe three tenths of a percent, well, that's a good thing. And that would bring that year over year down to 6.3%. And then you can see that the comparisons get a lot harder because they're a lot higher. So again, each month going forward, we're going to have to see five tenths, six tenths, six tenths, five tenths, and so on to see that year over year climb higher. Now, something else that's helping our case here is what the Fed's doing. Although the Fed might have been a bit behind the curve, as most have been saying, they are now coming in and hiking rates. So the Fed funds rate is currently at three and a quarter of a percent, and they've been ramping that up pretty quickly. The, actually, the fastest rate increase in history we've seen, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But on their November 2nd meeting, they're expecting to hike by another 75 basis points. So that brings us to 4%. And then potentially, and most likely, another 50 in their December meeting, which would bring us to about four and a half percent. Now, we heard from some Fed members recently, their goal is to get this Fed funds rate over four percent by the end of the year. But we are also hearing others say that they're likely going to be done by the end of this year hiking. Our good friend Peter Bookvar, who's absolutely brilliant, who you guys should definitely uh, read more about and go on his website. It's where we get a lot of our information. Again, he's saying that they're probably going to be done by the end of the year. So again, although we have really high inflation right now, there is something to look forward to. And when inflation moves, Moves lower, mortgage rates will move lower. So the the tool that the Fed has to fight inflation is the federal funds rate. You touched on the federal funds rate, and they've been hiking it at the fastest rate in history, right? How do Fed rate hikes impact the economy? Sure. So we're going to take a look at some more slides. And by the way, this is just a funny little one to look at that we like to talk about with inflation because Jerome Powell only a few months ago said, we now understand how little we understand about inflation. I mean, it's very comforting to hear uh, coming from your Fed chair. But what we're going to look at here is how the Fed hikes again lead us into recession. So this is exactly how they're affecting the economy and pushing us into a recession. Of course, if we're not already in one, we are still waiting for that official call 
from the NBER that's supposed to call this. But if you look back in history, all the way back since 1955, you can see that after every Fed rate hike cycle, we have a recession. They hike, 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 recession. Hike again, recession, and so on. So the cycle is really the same over the years. But then we have to look at how they affect things like treasury yields. So on a normal yield curve, when you put your money away, for example, for five years, you're not going to make as much if you put your money away for 30 years. And that's just a natural thing that happens in a normal market. But when the Fed starts hiking the Fed funds rate, their short-term lending rate, that's what's going to push the shorter end of the yield curve up. So you're going to start to see these shorter maturities move higher and the longer maturities move lower because inflation is what's affecting the longer end of this curve. So what's happening now in the market is, like I said, because that Fed rate hike is so high, or is really getting higher, I should say, and inflation is moving higher too, you're going to start to see the lower end move up and the longer end move down. And we circle this two and 10 year uh, these two and 10 year points right here, because we want to show the 10 to two year treasury yield spread. And really what that's saying is just the difference between the 10 year treasury yield and the two year treasury yield. And right now it's inverted. Or in other words, the two year treasury is yielding more than the 10 year treasury. Again, not something that happens in a normal market. Now, the interesting thing to look at is not what's happening right now, but what's happened in the past. So if you look historically, all the way back since the 70s, you can see that every time we've had this inversion, or again, when the two-year yield is greater than the 10-year yield, we've had recessions to come shortly after, as indicated by these gray bars here. Now, even for example, back in 19, when we had this short little blip of an inversion, we still saw a, re a recession, albeit the shortest one in history after, but now we're deeply inverted. We hit as low as I believe around 50 basis points inverted in the 10 to two year spread. I think now we're hovering between 30 and 40. Of course it changes by the day, but we are deeply inverted. And again, as the Fed continues to hike rates and the shorter end moves higher, we're gonna become even deep, even more deeply inverted. But something that I actually don't have a slide on, but that just happened last week is the 10 year to three month treasury yield spread did go inverted as well. It was very brief, so it's not like it's still there, but again, as these Fed hikes continue, we'll see more inversions across the board. And these are exceptionally reliable recession indicators. Wow. Now, I, oh, sorry. I didn't actually realize that there was an inverted yield curve, even if it was briefly. I didn't realize that we had done that with the three month versus the 10 year. Wow. That's right. That's right. Like I said, the 10 to two year yield spread is not only what we track at MBS Highway, it's what you likely hear most often in the news and in the media. But when you see that 10 year to three month inversion happen, that's a true sign of a recession to come, although we have many other signs. And if it's okay, I'd like to go into the unemployment rate next. Yeah, well, and let's talk about that, right? Sure. So we we hear a lot about how you know how can how can we be headed to a recession when the the job market's so strong? You know, the labor market we're we're fully employed. The unemployment numbers that we're seeing right now are at historically low levels, right? Uh, it might even be an all time low level. So how can we be headed to a recession when we are fully employed in the United States? Yeah, it's a great question. And a lot of people don't realize that the jobs market is the last shoe to drop, really, when you're looking at recession indicators. But when we do look at it, first, let's see what the Fed's saying once again. So we pull some, we like to pull some quotes from the Fed, have some fun. But we have uh, Governor Waller here, one of our voting members. So again, a very influential member of the Fed saying that he can't see a recession coming with a 3.5% unemployment rate. And it's okay, because the majority would think this, but he thinks that because we're, like you said, at record low, 
close, there's no way that we're going to enter a recession with such a strong jobs market. But again, we like to look at history at MBS Highway, and we think that it's so important for you to do too and explain to your borrowers if you are a mortgage or real estate professional. So when we do, you can see that all the way back since the 40s or mid 40s or so, that every time the unemployment rate is not at its highest point, but when it's at its lowest point and starts to be begins to tick higher, that's when we start to enter recession. So again, lowest point in the cycle begins to tick higher, lowest point ticks higher. And why is that? Well, when we think about it logically, for example, the economy is doing really well, everybody's working, everybody's making their money and spending their money. But then once that first business starts to feel a slowdown, the first thing they're gonna do to reduce costs is lower headcount and start laying workers off. Unfortunately, it's a very painful thing. But then once that individual that loses their job or gets laid off uh, doesn't have as much money to spend anymore, they're going to be forced to change their spending habits. So they're not going to go out for as many fancy dinners, as many vacations, as many fun nights out. So they're going to slow their spending. Now, the businesses that they were spending at are dependent on that money. So the businesses that are feeling this, they're going to then have to reduce headcount and start, uh, start firing or laying workers off. So the cycle just perpetuates, and that's why you see such a sharp rise at the beginning of each recession, but then it starts to come back down. And once that peak hits, it's pretty much right after recession every single time. Wow, it's fascinating. And it makes total sense. I just don't think enough people stop and think about, oh gosh, like it's just, it's so logical, right? That people little by little will start being, uh, getting laid off and then they're not out doing things in the marketplace, spending money, going out to dinner, going out to sporting events, doing travel and little by little, all of the other industries are impacted by those layoffs and they in turn have to lay people off also. That's what leads to the recession. So right. very well, uh, good description, good description. Uh, what happens to mortgage rates and, and home values during recessions? Well, let's take a look at mortgage rates first. So you can see this is a chart going back to right in the beginning of the 70s. And in every single recessionary period that we've seen, albeit I wasn't alive for most of them, but looking at history for any age, you can see that in the last one, they dropped by about a percent. They dropped from about 6% to 5% in the one before that and so on. So you can see every single time mortgage rates have dropped substantially during recession. And why is that? Because recessions are deflationary by nature. You're gonna see inflation come down. And like we said before, before, mortgage rates follow the same direction as inflation. Now, you asked about home prices too, and the main indicator or, or source that we use for what's happening and what has happened to home prices is the Case-Shiller Home Price Index. So you're gonna see this chart going back to the 60s. This white line represents the home price index and the blue bars represent recession. And you can see that for every single recession going in the past, except for that 08 bubble, which we'll talk about in just a second, home prices have either stayed steady or they've increased. Now. We do want to talk about this bubble portion right here for a second, because in the time leading up to the housing bubble, it was much different than what we have today. Today, we have much healthier loans being done. Back then, in 06, 07, there were uh, 580 FICOs and negative amortization loans, 100 LTV, and no income, no assets. So it's a much different, much healthier market today. But on top of it, we have such a different inventory and uh, demand picture today. 
So what I'd like to do is take a look at formations versus completions. And formations, as indicated by these blue bars here, are going to be either a couple living together and they need two roofs over their head now instead of one if they're splitting up, or maybe it's a child living with a parent. They're now going to move out by their first home. Whatever it is, it's just forming a new household in the market and they're going to need a home to fill it. And then the orange bars or more yellowish bars here are a demand or builders putting up homes. Now look here in this 06 time period, we had a huge drop in household formations or people forming their new household versus record high inventory that we've had. Now, if the builders would have just went back and looked at one simple thing, they would have likely learned their lesson a lot sooner. So let's take a look at what they should have and that's gonna be birth rates. So if we look exactly 33 years before 2006, right around 1972 or so, depending on this person's birthday that we're looking at, you can see that there was a huge in formations, or excuse me, births rather, in this same year, 1972. Now there are some reasons for it, but you can see that it pretty stayed pretty low for the years following, but then starts to increase going forward. So let's look back again at the other picture and show that it fits like a hand in glove. We saw a huge drop in formations, but builders just kept putting up homes. But guess what happens going forward? Well, we have extremely high formations, the blue bars right here, and you can see that if we go back to the birth rate chart just one more time, not only does it move higher, it levels off at this 4 million number, maybe just below it, but that's likely not going to slow down anytime soon. Now, let's take a look a little bit further into formations. So we have 1.773 million household formations happening annually, and that's not too far off of what we've seen historically. So if you just draw a line from right to left here, you can see that it's pretty much right along the average. But we do want to see what kind of demand we have, because like I said, it's much different than 06, 07, 08, where we had so many homes for sale, not nearly enough demand, but today it's much different. So we have 1.4 million homes that are actually being completed in the market, but we have to consider homes that are you know, retired or destroyed annually, so about 100,000. So that gives you a total supply of 1.3 or so million homes, but we have 1.7 million, almost 1.8 million households being formed. So obviously we're not meeting up to our demand at all, and that's probably not gonna get much easier for builders because of the lack of labor out there and the higher cost for them to finish putting up these homes. And like I said, builders are likely gonna be, or likely have have learned this lesson already since since what they've seen in 06 and 07. So birth rates translates to household formations and household formations drives the demand for housing. And now we're looking at the shortage of the housing that's available versus the families and individuals that are seeking ownership. There's an imbalance, we're short on housing and so we think the market is strong, yes? That's correct. All right, and that leads me into a question about, you know, a lot of people like to throw out, oh, there's gonna be another crash, like I'm waiting for the crash. I'm gonna sit on the sidelines and wait for the, for the short sales and the foreclosures, and I, there's gonna be an opportunity for a steal of a deal. So I, I'm, I'm gonna take my foot off the gas. Uh, rates are high right now. I don't think now's the time for me to buy. Uh, how is this different than the 08 bubble? Sure. So those people out there that are very nervous about a crash, 
I can't blame you because you have people in the media, whether it's CNBC or Fox or CNN or just all over social media, it is impossible to avoid. A lot of these people out here are saying that there's a crash coming because of certain reasons that we just combated in this, this slide deck here. But I do want to have a little bit of fun like we did with the Fed and look at Miss Diana Olick on CNBC. And we hear from her every morning. She talks about, for example, just this morning, new home sales was released and she gives her color on what's happened in that report. But a lot of the time it has a negative spin and you can't blame her because that's what sells. That's what all these different media outlets do. But we can't let our customers listen to them without giving them a good explanation as to why they shouldn't listen after. So let's have some fun. We're going to go through this pretty quickly and take a look at just some little nuggets that we found over the years. So in 2015, October 2015, Diana Olick said that there's a bubble larger today than there was in 06. Well, let's do a little exercise and see that if you purchased the $300,000 home right when she said this, well, the next year, you would have seen 5.1% appreciation. So you've missed out on $15,000. Thanks a lot, Diana. Now, the next year, in August, we're in a new housing bubble. Wow, two years in a row. So in that 12 months, we've seen 5.4% appreciation, another $17,000. Now we'll start to move pretty quickly here. In 2017, home ownership doesn't build wealth study finds. Well, I think we can all strongly disagree with that because it built about 6.1% appreciation, about $20,000. Now, in 2018, it's better to rent than buy in today's housing market. And with rents going up at 8% on renewals right now, at a, on average, I think we strongly disagree because we would have seen about 4% appreciation in the next 12 months, about $14,000. And in 2019, the housing market is about to shift in a bad way for buyers. And I think the only way it would shift in a bad way is if you didn't buy a home because you would have seen 4% appreciation, about $15,000. Then again, in 2019, at the very end, next year will be hard on the housing market especially in these, these big cities. And here we saw a whopping 16% appreciation in the following 12 months. And lastly, in mid-2021, the housing boom is over as new home sales fall to a pandemic low. Well, you would have missed out on another 18,000, excuse me, 18% in appreciation. So that $300,000 home that you didn't buy, Mr. Miss Client, in 2015, you would have missed out on $223,000 over the next X amount of years. So this is why it's important to listen to what the media has to say, but then use it to combat it with your customers, your referral partners, and with, like I said, your colleagues and your peers. Now, let's combat this a little bit further and take a look again at inventory numbers. So we talked about formations versus the number of completed homes we have. But let's take a look at inventory compared to 07. So in 07, we had 4 million homes in inventory, the record high versus one and a quarter million today. But the one and a quarter million, it sounds like a lot. It's still not enough, but even so, it's really less than 1.25 million that's really available out there in the market. So let's take a look. First, let's see how inventory has been rising. So since about March of this year, we had about 900,000 900,000 homes in inventory. Well, that's increased pretty dramatically since then to 1.25 million homes today. But when we were in the time, just in the last month or so of this big increase here, a lot of people out there were saying, we're seeing such a big inventory build. This is going to lead us right, right as, excuse me, this is going to lead us right into a crash. Well, Every single year we see this. If you take a look for the last 10 years, you can see that it's very cyclical. And right around June, July, August, usually July or August, you do see a peak in inventory and then it starts to come back down. So it is very cyclical. And why is this? Well, 
it's because of what we call the spring home buying season, but it's not because it looks beautiful outside. There are pretty flowers. The area is gorgeous. It's because of children moving to and from different areas and starting at different schools. As a parent, you're going to want to move your kid into an area uh, before the school year begins in September because kids can be mean. You know, they start in the middle of a school year and they might get bullied. They don't have many friends. So parents want to try to avoid this. They move in before the school year starts. That's why we see such a big build during these uh, summer months and then it starts to come back down. Now, let's take a look at the real number of inventory we have. So I mentioned that we have 1.25 million homes in inventory, but something that's forgotten a lot of the time is 518,000 of them are under contract. So your realtor is not gonna take you to a home and say, oh, well, this home's already been being sold, it's under contract, but let's knock on the door anyway, see if they let us in just to take a look. Well, no, they're not gonna do that. So there are really only 732,000 homes in actual available inventory. And it's so interesting to see that this is also cyclical, just like the inventory picture we saw so right around every uh, summer or so, we see the peak, then it comes back down. And now we're at about 41% of homes in the market that are under contract. And in a normal market, that's about 25%. Wow. I love data. I love statistics. The numbers don't lie. There are no feelings and no emotions with these numbers. That's what I love about it. That's right. We just want to, uh, we want to just get rid of the fear emotion that we see in the media. That's the only one. <laughs> yep. So how as a, as a service professional, as a real estate agent, as a loan officer, as we're trying to uh, teach and educate our clients, what, what are the right things to point out? What data points can we share with our clients to, to better illustrate for them that now is still a good time to buy? Why is this an opportunity for a home buyer in this market that is struggling to wrap their head around, you know, rates that are high sixes, low sevens, mid sevens? How do I make sense of going out and buying a home right now? Sure. And, you know, before I actually show the next slide and answer this next question, I think it's kind of interesting to talk about a story that I hear Barry, our CEO, talk about all the time. It's in all his presentations. I should have put it in this one here. But there was this man named Charles Duell, and he was the head of the U.S. Patent Office years and years and years ago. And in 1899, he said that we should close the patent office because everything that's been invented has already been invented, or that can be invented, I should say, has already been invented. And look at where we are now today in 2022. And and I bring that up because your best opportunities are never behind you. For example, if you do sell a customer at a rate of seven, seven and a quarter of a percent today, you have such a great opportunity to close that loan and then refinance it in the next six to 12 months or so. So as a mortgage professional, don't just think about the loan you're doing today, although it might be hard to close it with higher rates and higher home prices still, although it's uh, abating a little bit. Close that loan today, lower upfront costs, and then work with that customer in the future. That way you have a customer for life and you begin to do multiple loans for them and they have so much trust in you. But I do want to show a couple more slides here and show you that even with very conservative appreciation rates for home prices, we can still see really meaningful wealth creation in purchasing real estate. So our forecast uh, is going to be low to single mid-digits appreciation 
in the next few years or so. But according to Kay Schiller, we just got data the other day through August of 2022. Homes are appreciating now at around 13% year over year, likely lower now. Like I said, that data was for August. But let's be super conservative here. And let's just say that if you purchase a $400,000 home, even at a 4% rate of return, you can still create really meaningful wealth for your customers. So if you put a 10% down payment, you've invested $40,000, but then that home appreciates, you gain about $16,000 dollars in profit. So you've seen a 40% return on your investment. That is extremely meaningful, even at only a 4% rate of appreciation. And just to prove that point even further, it's interesting to take a look at different net worth tiers in the country. So net worth is all your assets minus all your liabilities to give you what your total net worth is. And according to Kiplinger, if you're in the top 1% net worth in the country, you really need $10.8 million on your net worth. Top 2%, 2.5 million. Top 5%, 1 million. Top 10%, 800,000. And top 50%, 500,000. But the real kicker here is that two thirds of all equity, or excuse me, all net worth is in home equity. Just today, we talked about in our daily morning update video that 34% of homes are owned free and clear, and the average equity in a home is 58%. So it is an extremely healthy market out there. And if you purchase a home or you've purchased a home in the past, you're seeing really meaningful wealth appreciation. And I mentioned briefly before our housing forecast, what we see going forward. Like I said, we see low single digit appreciation in the next coming year or so. And rents still continue to rise. They're, they're rising at 13% year over year on new rents. But if you're already in a rental and you're renewing that each year, they're going up at a clip of 8% a year. And that's the average for the country. And of course, when you're renting a home, you're not making any money out of it yourself, unfortunately. You're paying your landlord's mortgage. But when you purchase a home, you have things like equity through amortization and things like appreciation that'll build you a substantial amount of wealth. So the next and last piece that I wanted to show you is what's called on our website, actually, our buy versus rent comparison. This is a great way for both mortgage and real estate professionals to show their customers the true benefit in purchasing a home over renting in many cases, and also for customers to understand what the value is in purchasing a home, whether you're a first time home buyer or you're currently renting, moving into your first home. So we're going to take a look at kind of a crazy example here. Well, maybe not in today's market. Now it's a little bit more realistic. But we're looking at a $400,000 home with a 10% down payment, gives us a $360,000 loan amount. And right now we're looking at a rate of 7.5%, might be slightly over what you're offering, might not be. But let's just say that customer stays in the home for the next nine years. Well, we're going to account for a couple things like the property tax increase. So 2% each year that they're in the home, about $170 a month in maintenance and repair costs each month. And then the cost to sell. So when your customer goes to sell that home or when you go to sell your home in the next nine years, you're going to have to pay to sell that when you use that real estate agent to sell. And we're going to account with uh, account for the historical appreciation about four and a half percent here. But I can tell you that in this example, we use the forecast it is higher, but we are just staying a little bit more conservative here. Now, on the other side, we have the rent. So a rent each month of twenty seven fifty. But don't forget that that's going to go up each year. We're only using six percent here in this area. But for the national average, we have eight percent. So this is all customizable, of course, in MBS Highway. But once your customer asks you that question of, should I buy this home or should I rent a home? Well, you can show them and they can pretty much make the decision for themselves. You can show them that their P&I or their principal and interest is $2,500 a month. But then once you start to add the property taxes and insurance and maintenance and repair costs, that goes up to around $3,500. So it doesn't sound that, that, that less expensive anymore. 
But then when you go to rent that home, that $2,750, add in a little for your insurance, well, that brings it up all the way to $2,800. So at first glance, it's a no-brainer. The customer is going to say, or you're going to say, well, it's I'm, I'm saving money on renting this home because the mortgage payment is so much higher. But then you have to say, well, after five years, that rental payment becomes just exp as expensive as your mortgage, even though that said it's still gonna be better off to rent this home by $200, basically a wash here is what I'm trying to say. But in any case, you're gonna see that as long as you start making your mortgage payments, you're gonna gain about $41,000 in equity. And on top of it, you're gonna gain about $194,000 in appreciation. So what meaningful wealth creation you have in purchasing this home. And again, that's with that more conservative four and a half percent. Now, we're also going to account for things like the tax benefits. So nearly 18, about $17,000 here or so in a tax benefit over that standard deduction. And then we're going to subtract about $36,000 for a cost to sell. So we're not just giving all the positive numbers here about purchasing a home. We want to look at the negative numbers too. Now, all together, we're going to see that you're going to benefit by about $206,000 if you're in that home for the next nine years. And the longer you stay, the bigger that number gets. But if you're looking to purchase this home for less than two years, well, no, it definitely doesn't make sense to purchase. You just don't have enough time in that home to recover, to recover the upfront costs. But if you're in that home anywhere for more than three years, well, this is going to be a great investment for you. So that's just one example of how you can explain to different buyers out there or explain to your friends even that are looking to purchase a home, why it's such a good idea. But again, like I said before, the opportunity that you have does lie ahead. It does not lie behind you because although rates are higher today, inflation is much higher, home prices are coming down a little bit as expected, of course. And that's something I should say too, actually. Uh, I know we said low single digit appreciation going forward is our pretty much national forecast here. And we do believe in that, but we do want to say that there are some areas that could see a decline in home prices, places like Phoenix, LA, San Diego, places in Washington. Um, I I, think, I don't know if I mentioned Denver too. These places that had crazy high appreciation, super too high appreciation, you might see a little bit of a decline there, but it's only natural because you saw this boom in, a, in home prices. But overall, we should see some meaningful appreciation going forward and use the tactics and the, the knowledge that you have today to close more loans, sell more homes, or make smarter purchasing decisions, and then work on that in the near future with whatever the market gives us. Yeah, I just really want to encourage everybody to take a long-term investment approach to home ownership. We're not day trading houses. You know, this is the roof over your head. You're going to live there for years and years and years, at least in my opinion, that should be the plan. If you're not going to live there for at least five years, I don't see you know, buying making sense. So buying isn't going to make sense for everybody, but if you're going to stay put for five plus years, I think it is a, a good thing to look at. And you have to be able to see the forest through the trees. You have to be able to look at the amortization gain, which is the payments are little by little whittling away at the principal balance of the loan that you take on. So that's what amortization gain is. You got to combine that with the appreciation of the home over time 
time, as, as Diana said, in the short term, it may not be realistic that you're going to appreciate in the next 12 months, but over the course of 5, 10, 15 years, you're absolutely going to see appreciation. So when you combine the amortization gain with the appreciation gain, you also take into account some of the tax ramifications and consider sales, you know, commissions being paid to real estate agents. It's not all green. There are some liabilities. There's some red there too, but the net effect is that you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars in investing in real estate. It's a great long-term investment. Two-thirds of all net worth in America is, is home equity, right? So it's always gonna be a great thing to own land, own property, own homes. And if you have questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. Diana is super busy. She's doing a lot of speaking engagements and a lot of things behind the scenes. So I would love to act as filter for you, whether I need to pass questions on to Diana or whether I'm able to field them myself, please reach out to me, my cousin Tyler, my loan partner, and I have access to all of the tools from MBS Highway and there's a lot of them there's a lot of great visuals a lot of great data that we can share with you and I would love to put together some of these reports for you if you have any questions about a home that you currently own or you're maybe thinking about getting in the market to buy I would love to use the MBS Highway tools to put those reports together for you Diana thank you so much for joining me today I know that everybody that tunes in and watches this video or listens to the podcast they're gonna get a ton of value from what you shared with us and uh, I can't wait to have you back again you know the market's gonna shift in the in the coming months in the coming years and I want to keep bringing you guys back in because it's a it's a lot of good stuff a lot of positive mindset energy and passion that you bring to the table and I love sharing that with my my followers Thank you so much, Jeff. It's always our pleasure and our honor to be able to talk to you and give us the time to share our message. But like Jeff said, depend on him and his team for all these different tools and resources. He has us in his corner, giving us giving him some of this color on what's happening in the market. But Jeff is the guy that you want to go to. Of course, if you have any deeper questions, you know you can depend on MBS Highway, but use Jeff at Movement Mortgage and the rest of the Movement Mortgage team. We love them dearly. And like I said, they're all great followers of MBS. But again, Jeff, thank you for letting me be on today. And I hope you guys found this of value. I appreciate you so much. Virtual hug. I'll see you later, Diana. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Jeff.